Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the March 7th, 2023 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, my guest for the full hour is Kate Abate, gerontologist, Olympian athlete, health span implementation, research and development advocate. And as a gerontologist, she's got some insight about elder abuse under our very noses. Think continuum from intentional to not so intentional abuse and neglect we'll be looking at. If we do our job effectively, it could bring impactful conversations with your elders and your successors for better aging outcomes or just plain better aging scenarios. We'll be right back with Kate after a brief station break. Well, folks, I'm just as elder, the elder demographic is uh, the subject of today's whole hour. You know what? Between Kate and me and the rest of you, this is the soundtrack I want in my day room, wherever I am a senior at <laughs> any time. So I want to welcome you back to the show. My guest for the full hour is Kate Abate, gerontologist, Olympian athlete, health span implementation research and development advocate to bring ideas and insight for clarity about elders one sixth of our population for whom medical school devotes like weeks in instruction so we'll let all of that sink in in addition to being a board certified gerontologist gerontology being the multidisciplinary study of aging Kate is also a certified personal trainer, nutrition coach, crisis counselor, registered yoga teacher, and a professional Olympian athlete in bodybuilding. Kate draws on her 15 years at the center of the fitness industry in L.A. to integrate her deep knowledge of functional fitness. That's where this health span notion comes in. Public health, lifestyle design, and creative wellness to form a cohesive and precise method for robust and meaningful longevity. I'm lifting that. Those are her words. I did not craft them. She gets all the credit. She's a volunteer crisis counselor at Rape, Abuse, Incest, and the National Network. It's RAIN is the shorthand, and has recently contributed at a conference presented there by that organization. And she may have some experiences to share with us today. She completed her Bachelor's of Arts in Politics and International Relations with the minor in economics at Scripps College, her post-baccalaureate in psychology at UCLA, and her master's in science in gerontology at USC. That's, that's probably, I think, one of the oldest gerontology schools there. And uh, she comes to us today from Westchester County, New York. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Kate Abate. Thank you so much, Claudia, for that very warm introduction. Well, we're glad you're here, so I'm thanking you back in a hurry. So what led me to Kate? Well, it felt like the LinkedIn algorithms were eavesdropping on my conversations with dear friends confounded by the oh, this very delicate topic of their aging parents' autonomy 
as they manage and or decline, uh, you know, they're managing their, their decline, maybe avoid or not manage it at all. So a lot of friends are grappling with this. And before, though, we explore this topic with Kate, with this so many layers to, um, that I hope we can cover, I'd like to have Kate, because I know people are going to search Kate Abate here as we're talking or afterward. I want you to, Kate, talk about how you got from your earlier career to gerontology, so uh, along with uh, what you express as building longevity. So, I mean, you are like the most amazing shiny object, and and so gerontology <laughs> has a has a different sheen to it. How did you, how did you become this professional now? Thank you so much. You know, in hindsight, everything makes sense, right? Right. But you know, health and fitness and wellness is something that helps us all across the lifespan. And when I graduated from Scripps College, I wanted to make a difference. And it seemed that a lot of the roads to for that path um, were closed right after the housing crisis. And I started teaching yoga. And I said, you know, I'll do this on a small scale until I can figure out what's next. And that holistic framework for understanding health, wealth, wellness, the body, and how yoga, the union of yoga, really took a longer route. And that introduced me to other areas of fitness, of course. But, you know, again, in hindsight, now in gerontology, when I sit in these rooms with these beautiful academics and, you know, senior housing experts, at the end of the day, if you're not prioritizing your mental, physical, or spiritual health, your longevity is really hamstrung. And and that's saying a lot. A bodybuilder that's hamstrung, that's like that just changes your that ends your not ends, but that really changes your game. So that's that metaphor is pretty cool to use in this sense. <laughs> so on many layers this is, as I um, wanted to mention earlier, is that it's an intergenerational landmine. And so that's what I've, I want us to think of what we cover here, this delicate top of this, this sort of continuum along its sort of its abuse, its uh, elder neglect, and a sort of how we can, as we're witnessing it or we're catching ourselves in somehow uh, benignly, but, uh, but, you know, participating in that kind of thing, how we can, we can look at just I, I, being present, being effective in the situation. And so as we talked about this a little, we talked a lot on background. I was really glad we had this chance and that you signed on to do this today, that there's the trade-offs of our elders' security versus their autonomy. And this is the dance we all do with our dear elders. And so I, I would like for you to first talk about that that trade-off and how you coach that, um, coach us, and how maybe you have a different way of looking at that, um, that equation. Sure. So... Just circling back a little bit, there are a few events that I experienced in my life that led me to get a little bit, you know, into the more serious aspects of gerontology as we get older. Um, Obviously, health is at the heart of what's most serious. But what you're hitting on exactly is 
um, something I think we have all experienced a loved one go through something devastating. And it has broken my heart to see members of my own family suffer and have no capacity to make a different choice. Um, whether that's because of a cognitive issue on their end or because of a structural issue from the system. The choices at end of life have not always been robust, and we're working on that. But I think that's what drives many people to get into gerontology at a young age, is witnessing a grandparent, a parent, or a spouse undergo devastating pain. And when it comes to the trade-off between security and autonomy, it's common for that pain one witnesses to create the fear and want to protect the loved one at all costs. And while there, that intention is, you know, from the heart, it's not always what the older adult wants. And you see it a lot with, I'll say, adult children who are caregiving and caregiving is not just a burden, right? There's a, it's a huge honor and a privilege to be there for someone at end of life and to enjoy those moments. I mean, you've all been in those rooms where the most prescient wisdom is passed down and it's a true gift, but there's also the emotional toll of watching someone go through end of life and it can be so much that we will one will choose safety for the older adult rather than maybe prioritizing what the older adult wants in that moment and so that's the conundrum between security and autonomy and quite frankly every situation is mm. different in gerontology mm. We always say, well, if you've worked with one older adult, then you've worked with one older adult. Yes. Because every situation is fiercely different. Everyone has different chronic conditions. As we get older, we become more differentiated. So each person who helps someone else age is an expert in that unique situation. And it's very hard to, for anyone, to come in and say, this could have been done better. This isn't the right way to do this. You understand? Yes. So, so the, yes. I, I just want to make that clear that, you know, anyone speaking from this time of life, it has to be really with a broad lens of compassion because we like to use the word, you know, partnership, right? Because again, I'm not an expert in, in your life. And anyone who's helping out would want to do that from a place of advocacy, of helping everyone in the situation to find the best path forward for what makes sense for them in that moment with the circumstances, the context, the culture, and you know the, the cohort with the circumstances. So I want to really lay out, I can think of two scenarios that give us an idea of just how how this continuum is really broken down. Like you said, if you've seen one elder case, you've seen one elder case. And 
that's been brought to my attention, there's two situations that we can start with. Like, oh, that, I mean, it's neglect. And elders, it may not be even considered. And I'm thinking of uh, specifically two situations where it's within the marital pair, the neglect is occurring. In one case, it is the the parent the the father the the husband wishes for relocating to a place where there's more care to leave their home for a special care place the husband needs to have various devices so that his lack of vision at this point can be accommodated and he can have his lifeline a phone that can work or you know a, a backup have uh, and have the the spouse being able to use the phone and, and not fumble with it so there's this this person is really pleading to their their offspring we i want out of this house but the the autonomy is more important to the wife in that case that's one situation where there's that struggle and they're not they're not moving anywhere and the the man is really it's in in really quite a, a bind there and another one is where a spouse doesn't believe in the use of depression relief in medications. Mm. And so the offspring with whom I'm familiar would love to be able to assist and get the pain uh, that it's not pain. It's a depression uh, medication for to, to really give that father of hers relief. But, but the mother does not believe in that kind of thing. There's a cultural overlay there that we don't need that. We don't do those things. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's, a part of this continuum of elder abuse that I want people to think, oh, is that, that's right. That is a part mm-hmm. of what's going on here. So I don't know if you would like to sort of talk, give us a, a definition so people can now, oh, now I see what they're talking about. Yes, it's present. And then as we unpack all of this, we can find out what maybe you have in mind is what the bystander or what maybe we're participating, maybe we're being neglectful ourselves how we will get to that point where we are are effective in intervening in some way but what can you give us like an elder abuse elder neglect kind of a definition for the broadest uh, take on the observation of witnessing this Mm, sure i mean first of all both of those situations are so challenging um and you know, fam- family relationships and systems are the most challenging aspect as we get older. And it's an area that that just that subject matter has been fiercely neglected. Again, because the dynamics are so different within each family unit and the way the family unit shifts and shapes and is defined across the lifespan, you know, people take on different roles. Um, again, with the whole authority who's you know where did the authority land it's very complicated but there's intimate partner violence and and generally when someone is being harmed or when someone is causing self-harm that's when we start to really look at what's going on here with respect to violence or self-violence and that harm you are right includes neglect um, and so we need to sometimes look at, like, what is not being given, the absence, as well as, you know, what kind of, are there manipulation tactics going on? What kind mm-hmm. of psychological harm? You know, overly held stigmas that, that again, there's so many dynamics. Um, we, 
in my work on the hotline, we don't like to define anyone else's experience. So it's not my place. It's, it's my place as an advocate to give you the information and for you to then match what exists in the literature with your personal experience. And if you choose to use language that where you identify with, uh, with abuse, that we'll support you with that for sure. Okay. Thank you. And that's, uh, that was what I wanted to bring because uh, your recent contribution at Rain with the intimate partner violence, it, it is, there's another sliding scale. And through that frame, you can see where there's different levels of how partners can isolate, can, like you mentioned, manipulate. Mm-hmm. There's there, and it's, and it's so insidious, and that's where there's a continuum is, how insidious mm-hmm. the neglect is. And these are, of course, they're elders. They've been, these are probably very, very long marriages, and they're, and as you said, that the they're here. <laughs> it's so, there's so many conditions sort of folded into that long marital relationship that make that not just unique, but fraught for for making them safe and and advancing. Absolutely. Absolutely, and, and and I think that's why it's really important to, I mean, I mean, it gets even more complicated yes. when uh, questions of cognitive capacity are are involved. And again, that can be a tactic of manipulation because if anyone is feels that their cognition is being is is in question, that's a humongous power dynamic. And we see that more and more, that the suggestion that someone has lessened cognitive capacity is a real ageist insult, which will make anyone at any point in their lifespan question their sanity. And that's the, I'll say the insidious, and I know there's this buzzword, gaslighting, but... Well, it is. Yeah. That suggestion is really hostile. And so I would ask and, and try to create awareness around the sensitivity with which we deal with cognitive issues as we age because it creates true physiological and psychological stress when someone feels that they are not performing or that they don't have access to their brain like they used to. And that can create the behavior pattern within relationships that becomes very abusive. Well, it, what comes to me, my mind, Kate, when you're talking about cognitive capacity being attacked of manipulation, it could be that the cognitive capacity of the one who's being neglectful can also interfere with helping them thrive. Sure. So that they don't they don't see what's the prop. They don't understand the issue, the, the the problem, and then if you don't see the problem, then you're obviously you don't have the cognitive capacity to see about how to to manage. Now, I'm solving is, is aspirational, but to to address and manage it. So it's sort of it's cognitive capacity is on both sides of the 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 couple dynamic in the Absolutely. seniors. Absolutely, and Claudia, that's so astute, and that's why you know with couple dynamics. I really like to advocate for the individual and then also, as you said, you know, these people, marriages are long and they have dynamics for decades. And 
it's just so complicated. <laughs> but we're taking on. We're we're gonna. Everybody's gonna get something. There's at least a couple nuggets we want everybody to take. So for those of you who just joined us, my guest is Kate Abate, a gerontologist, Olympian athlete, and health span implementation research and development professional. And so then the the. You you talk about later life power and control wheel, who makes the major decisions, and the housing choice is a decision, and so that's part of that presentation that you recently gave, and uh, how family members are misled about the extent and the nature of the illnesses, and then this sort of the that next complication is the offspring's reaction to, and a. Ability, I'm going to say mobilize, because, I mean, it's like gathering the gall, the, the moxie, to uh, to address what their elder parents are struggling with. So that that's a mouthful. I just want you to pull out parts of that and what needs, uh, what you can inform us about in, intervening with those dynamics, the, off, the offspring being misled and their fearful disposition being uh, redirected or, un, uh, or reduced so they are really they uh, they can they can rise amidst this very fraught interpersonal situation and they can and, and they can break through and i know you said it's all unique but there's still that dynamic is so universal absolutely and i think it's Something that got me into this field, but I, I, again, I had a, a few personal experiences, um, one within my marriage, and then, you know, my mother broke her neck, and Ooh. I, you know, I, we all have things that help us to see, oh, wow, there's a gap, and I'll say the end of our lives is an area that is fiercely unaddressed and we need to have more advocacy as you just said because oftentimes adult children don't live near their parents and they may have a lovely relationship day to day but not really understand what's going on day to day so i think the first thing is to get more involved and ask the parent what that looks like for them okay okay that's great. Yeah. That's a very clear, clear suggestion. I mean, that's, it's so disarming and it's so effective. But tell us more about that, please. Continue. It's common to have someone kind of coming in hot, <laughs> sweeping in the adult child who's the hero and wants to pitch in because they care so much and they just want to do everything for mom. And mom might say, well, hold on here. I can live in my life. I'm getting my groceries. I'm enjoying the way things are going. I'm totally fine. And it may be that there's some communication that there can be some healthy compromises on both sides. Maybe mom is not seeing quite as well as she was and some of the groceries are going rotten in the fridge and, you know, that she wasn't able to see as well before. Okay, we'll get her eyes checked. And she agrees to that. She says, okay, you know, it's about creating a dialogue instead of someone coming in saying, you know, 
in gerontology, we really hate the term parentifying. The adult child never becomes the parent. The parent is ah. the parent. The child is the child. It, if ever that line is crossed, everyone needs to step back and say, okay, hold on. That's a flag. That's, that's where we know we haven't parked the cape. We haven't parked the lab coat. We haven't put the sweatshirt on yet. Exactly. Wow. That's a good check. And hmm. it's hard because you want to do the best you can. And especially if, as an adult child, if you are a parent in your own life, that's the, you know, the hammer you've been using for the past X amount of years. So it's, I think, a, you know, really adopting a beginner's mind again. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. For the with this chapter of really advocating for what is your parent, or it could be not your parent, it could be someone else. What it, it could be your spouse. What does this person need, and how can I support them to tell me what they need, and then go from there. I'm just trying to figure out how to bring into this the. The uh, the sort of ableism <laughs> assumed in yeah. how tech has is running everybody's lives. Let's face it, folks, it's running our lives. You know, the phone, my 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 iPhone is the cell phone's right here. You know, I'm, who knows? I'm going to crack it open when I need to. But this, but this tech too is for for someone who, as it increasingly becomes more complicated. That is also a kind of a, it becomes an isolating and option reducing uh, feature in an elder's life. Is I mean, have you have you a way of responding to that? Because it, I mean, I I can just feel like things are still getting more and more complicated, and I'm thinking, when am I gonna? When is it too much? And it's already too much for 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 many seniors, sure. elders. Well, you bring up two major topics, Claudia, and. I think everything we're talking about is really major. Um, right. And that's, you know, a beautiful thing because there's a lot of breadth and depth to go through. Mm. Um, but there's ableism and there's technology, and there's something that is referred to as the digital divide, which is not as severe as, I'll say, the media would have you think. Um, we do have... People who are who have high T, you know, T, DQ or digital literacy across the age span. Of course, being a digital native, you will probably be more proficient with technology. Until I'm not. But, <laughs> right, and that's just how you know how the cookie crumbled. Right, I was raised with you know I went to a high a laptop high school program. You know, I've been on computers for my whole life essentially. Um. And at the same time, it's not going away. So to create more, you know, better programs with larger fonts and to make things as accessible as possible is always going to be an ask from my field to anyone who's doing anything with technology. And we can say age tech is a massively expanding industry and the opportunities in the industry will continue to just unfold infinitely. Back to ableism, you bring up 
a very astute point that many people overlook when we think about aging and we think about ability as being these two siloed categories, but they're not at all. And, and when you especially think about the way that the, the government, I'll say, structures things, they have aging and disability in one bucket. Mm. And that's its whole other conversation, um, whether that's, you know, the good or the bad. I mean, I'm not the moral police. But when you think about, let's say, someone who has, we were just discussing uh, an adult mother who her vision has gotten worse over the years. And there are government programs and support systems, long-term care support systems for individuals who define themselves or others define them as being blind. Now, that older adult who's 88 living independently, who no longer sees the way she did, and if she goes to the ophthalmologist, the ophthalmologist say, well, you're legally blind. She does not necessarily identify as being someone who's blind. She says, well, I'm just old. But the government gives benefits to people for a disability with vision. And there are programs and services that, because she doesn't necessarily identify herself as being blind, she doesn't want, she doesn't say, oh, well, I'm, I also have a disability. Therefore, I so would there's also not, have access to these supports and services. They don't pursue it then. So that option is not exercised. Right. And that that is a depleting, uh, you know, a uh, circumstance there. Right. Uh, wow. There's a lot there. And that's, I would recommend bringing in a, a specific expert at the intersection of aging and disability. But there's a lot of rich conversations about kind of flushing that out. And then, of course, from an advocacy perspective, you know, terminology, right? So things are more or less accessible. But, you know, even using the term disability, nobody is disabled, right? We all have different varying levels of ability, um, strengths and weaknesses and opportunities. So this, when, while you're talking about the governmental restricting, um, restricting how this is addressed, and I've, in the introduction, and I wanted to bring up how even in training medical professionals, if it's, I understand that it is a very short geriatric section in medical school, so that's also institutionalizing, under-addressing, the very mm-hmm. complex, if, as it was pointed out in this wonderful talk that I know you know of Dr. Uh, Louise Aronson. I I only mm. found about her just, and that's a whole, you know, she's got great work. But, but as she points out that, you know, we have all these medical pr- specialties, pediatrics, and it's very well built out. It's There's so much literature. There's so much definition and workup. But... With geriatrics, it just it just drops off, and we, so it's no surprise that not only are there not that many geriatricians in the country, but there's not even there's even fewer good ones. So, the medical school system 
is also reinforcing uh, neglect of elders. Fair. That's it. It's it's on them too. Absolutely. I I, I mean, it's we'll say the the power that be that creates the curriculum, right? It's not necessarily the students that are going through the curriculum. They medical students will tell you they don't have very many choices <laughs> day to day. They are going through their, um, you know, through their rounds, and geriatrics is an elective. Really? And uh, yes, it, it's you are. It's not required necessarily. So not everyone has geriatric experience. And Louise Harrison's book Elderhood is a fantastic read uh, for anyone who wants to really dig a little bit deeper into the systemic issues. It's also very, very well written. There's, it's really full of beautiful information. Elderhood redefining aging, transforming medicine, reimagining life, and that's that's a homework thing. And we, were, you and I, have talked about other books, and I, I'm just really new to that one. So I come to this interview without having the benefit of reading that. But it's on. It's 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 going to be quickly in my rotation. But it, but for her framing that that institutional, so that's a form of neglect that. If it's an elective, it it really explains why so many medical professionals have no idea. It's sort of like I'm. You can't see me on radio, but it's sort of like holding a soiled uh, garment, sort of out away from yourself. It's sort of like that's geriatrics. You know, that's I. I don't want to. I don't want to enmesh myself. I don't want to consider that part well, of of patient work. For for many reasons, it becomes very complicated. There's very little research. Yes. on individuals who are older than 65. So if if you are trained to identify areas of high-risk practice, it may make sense to feel that working with older adults is riskier on the one hand from a practical perspective, and on the other hand, it's not compensated as well because, you know, many, many doesn't allow for much flexibility with a private practice. So the reimbursement model is is not quite as strong. And you're right, generally there is very little attention paid to the time where we transition. Um, and Louise Emerson brilliantly talks about how we spend so much time on adolescence, but we really don't spend time on transitions later in life at all. And I want to be clear, I'm not sure that every program is an elective with geriatrics. I know that in some programs it is, but it's just not necessarily the main focus that most people go to medical school for. Okay. And I've had Laura Mosqueda, who's a geriatrician now uh, at USC, formerly at UC Irvine, and uh, I can... I know uh, she'll she'll give me the straight down load on what is the um you know how to what extent and which schools are making it an elective versus a, a part of the required rotations there. So for those of you who've just joined us here on Ask a Leader, my guest is Kate Abate, a gerontologist. You're hearing her talk about that, and so let's talk about, I guess, witnessing. Because we're, we're putting a lot on everybody to see this huge continuum of neglect and abuse of our precious, precious elders. And precious is not a diminutive kind of a modifier. It's just, I, I just, precious is a respectful reference to them in that sense. That what we 
witness what we as bystanders, what our role is in intervening, calling, reporting, and reforming institutions. That's I mean we that we can we can't do all those, but as it's happening. Um, oh, and let me back up before we go into that where they're intervening because it's a, a key area of intervening is I'm going to folks you know know where I'm going to go with this next maybe Kate does um, that there there is the matter of elders being sequestered in their residence and they're being subjected to particular media which is really not media it's a propaganda platform and they are being sort of uh, estranged from real life by the saturation of those media platforms that are actually propaganda platforms. So that's where I that's where I started thinking about intervention is like, oh my gosh, this uh, this partner is being subjected to the other partner's choice or both of them because they're they don't have any other kinds of incoming new new uh in, uh, resources and um and guides and information and all that. So what what do you deal with media saturation in an elder's home? That's a form for me of abuse. <laughs> um do you mean having the television on for hours a day? Uh, that's usually there is particular platforms where they happen to be always turned on. So the saturation is I happen. Yeah. Um well a few statistics. On average, I think people who are retired, it's something between four and eight hours of television daily are being watched. So there's a lot of social dialogue around that. I will say something we can comment on, though, uh, because it, it, when we get into judgment and... I'm, um, no, I'm very aware of that, but I'm, I'm still going to go there because people say they... Fine. Yeah. Um, I, I'm going to go into a, a different area, which, I, which is really about engagement and the strength of engagement and, and I'll say positive engagement options, because re- regardless of what you're inhaling from the television, it's still not activating. It's, we're not being, it's not our highest utility and capacity. And for our best health, our best cognition moving forward, uh, we want to be engaged. And there are many different forms of engagement. But, you know, if if you want to, you know, also as a gerontologist, I'm not here to say who can breathe longest, you win. That's (sighs) not the goal. (laughs) But who is having the best time? And what does that mean to you? And for me, that means being able to make a difference as long as possible. And the capacity to be generativic and to give back is one of the greatest gifts that we receive from our elders and the passing down of wisdom and the intergenerational connection and understanding, storytelling, learning. Our elders, I would like to see more integration of that strength capitalized and used and that could be some time that's not sitting in front of the television but we have to create those positions so that our older adults feel celebrated and welcomed into society because right now 
you know, older adults are pushed out of pushed out of the way. And that goes to your point about, you know, the television and whatever the channel is, it's ages. Whatever the channel is, it is telling us and re- it's confirming in our mind belief systems that old is bad and that we need to remove it and that young is better. And we need to continuously work to unwire that reinforcement system of belief because that makes us less healthy as we get older. As we internalize that, that becomes reinforced. We become less confident. We walk slower. We hold our heads lower. Our heart rate is increased. Our stress goes up. Our blood pressure goes up. There's a physiological feedback mechanism that comes with the age set of belief. And that is absolutely concretized by the images that are being, you know, blasted into our brains by something like television. Wow. Worst thing that could happen. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it, it, and the, if it's such a steady dose, it's like an IV. You're just, you're mm-hmm. getting that. And, and then it's also a platform, the television, for scamming those sequestered seniors. Mm-hmm. So that's so that's where I'm trying to get now to mm-hmm. what we as bystanders when we we have uh we have about 8 minutes left or so that we can talk about you're giving us one assignment is about our participation in raising that engagement listening interacting but that's a big ask for a lot of people to go in mm-hmm. fearlessly go in respectfully go in and engage and interact with our seniors so maybe love the ones you're with that that your friends that are far away, but you, you know you know their senior parents here, and you can be with them. But it's but anyway, that's part. That's what one thing a bystander can can be doing. Can you talk about maybe the sliding scale levels besides this kind of engagement of of intervening in this this cycle of downward cycle of the, those that feedback loop you're talking about. I, mouthful. Like, I give you nothing but I mouthfuls. Think, I'm so sorry, Kate, but I'm you're sorry? up for it. I give you a mouthful of questions all the time, but it's you're 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 <laughs> well, managing it very well. Thank you. I mean, this is it's so complicated, yep. right? And again, I think if we're elevating advocacy, right? So the brand that I've created and my campaign is really called Advocate Longevity, right? And I use a plan words. I'm Kate Advocate because I think we need to go back to the beginning and ask the person in question, what does longevity look like for you? What is, what do you want your health span to be? You know, are you someone who wants to run the marathon? Are you someone who is totally keen to watch TV and eat chocolate ice cream? And that is good. And is that and that's okay. We like I am not I'm not sitting here saying that's not okay. So when we're using words like intervene, I think it I like a word like integrate. Thank and you. Thank you. Point I, taken. Yeah, I I I think sometimes I I agree with you because I think that sometimes the belief system has been so hard wired that our older adults feel they are not wanted. They feel that their contribution is not wanted. And that, to me, is where there's an opportunity for those of us who are younger or in positions that have access 
two engagement opportunities to bring older adults in and say, hey, do you want to get involved in something like this? Because I think we have a role in society where we need to bolster the contribution that older adults do bring to the table and build that confidence in them that they have so much value and that perhaps we are broken as a society because we are lacking the, you know, the close to that circle because we're not getting that wisdom delivery from them right now. And th- those of us who are younger are starving for it. Everyone I know wants a mentor and they don't have the water cooler anymore. Things are virtual. We're also separate, right? We you know maybe some of us are going back to work, but things are different now. So we have to be much more intentional about the way that we structure society in these important relationships. And the older adult needs to be pulled back from the ledge saying, hey, mm-hmm. there's value here and your value and you're important. And I need you to tell me what this path looks like, because I think the mistake is that younger people are thought to believe they know what's going on. But that's not true. If you look at the levels of anxiety that lower that, that younger people have, they're really high. And I think that's because there's no beautiful relationship and uh, delivery intergenerational of the passing down of that wisdom. So I feel like there's a lot of opportunity for social health to really weave in more multi-generational living, intergenerational programming, conversations, dialogues, and, you know, what uh, one of my mentors, Chip Conley, calls mentorship, which is where there's the typical mentor and intern, and you combine the roles, and they both learn from one another. And that's really one of the many sad after effects outcomes of the pandemic with the isolation. And I, right here, right where I'm seated, it's that mentoring where I I want to help with the experience I've garnered from the consuming and producing radio media that uh, I have, I've not been able to bring that to the new trainees so that they can really, like, they can really raise their game. It, 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 and it's, it's a, it's noticeable that that mentorship has fallen off. So it's, that's just one little, but so the pandemic has made that mentorship a real steep, steep slope to mount. Sure. I also think one, I love hearing that you want to find that because I think just as simply as putting that out there now, you know, we can create that, but also on the other side of the pandemic, everything now has to be so much more intentional. So if there is that desire, I think it's easier than ever to actually find the match because people are hybrid and remote. So it is just a phone call away, but you're right that the initiative has to be taken. Yes. Well, Kate, would you, offer us, uh, as we close, other resources. I did mention Dr. Louise Aronson's book and that you know well, and I, I'll know better. I'll Give me a few weeks. <laughs> and uh, there are other, you've talked about the, also your website, advocatelongevity.com. There are some items there. 
and follow you. But there are is there another bit of uh, some other additions to the reading list to the resource list? Uh, yes, absolutely. The resource list is is long. Let's do this. Instead of the answering it now, I'm going to ask for, maybe you have it already in a some kind of an inventory, but I would like to keep that and offer listeners for the podcast summary. I'm just going to load up that summary with a ton of resources that Kate can give me after the broadcast. So just, and they, you know, I could also categorize them in different sorts of approaches and uses and that kind of a thing. So, and so in concluding here, I would like to ask that maybe we could have you back, Kate, and we could talk about the really cool work that's being done for holding conversations about death, death over over meals of some kinds. Sure. Death over dinners. Absolutely. Um, thanks so much, Claudia. Um, an initiative I was hinting at earlier called Generations Over Dinner that I'm thrilled to be a part of a beautiful intergenerational program, and it comes on the heels of a a very popular program called Death Over Dinner, which is much like what it sounds, but it's a prepared conversation um, about death over a meal with loved ones. And it's a beautiful, enriching experience. And we we will bring that up, and I would like for another call uh, in on the show in the future. Okay, Kate, we'll do that. That sounds great, Claudia. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time and really slogging through all these like uh, unwieldy big questions. But that's just the, the measure of how very unwieldy respecting our elder demographic around us, right around us. Thank you so much, Kate. Absolutely, Claudia. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It was great to speak with you today. <sighs> My guest was Kate Abate gerontologist, Olympian athlete, and health span implementation researcher. And so we'll have her back soon. Well, this is my wrap. Next week, my guest will be, and it just turns out this way, there's a pediatric oncology staff from Children's Hospital of Orange County developing a program known as Voicing My Choices, where terminally ill youths and their families negotiate end-of-life options. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. This was hard stuff. Thanks for staying with us today.